Hello and welcome back to the Acts and Politics. This is season two, episode three. I'm Lucas. I'm Kayla. And I'm Akash. Apologies for the delay. We have been running on finals week and dead week. It's been uh, quite busy over here at Stanford, but we're here to give you a quick rundown of what's been going on the past week and a half, especially here on campus. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, activity on campus. The first thing, and I think the thing that has a lot of students um, up in arms right now, is the ban of the band. The Stanford University um, Junior Leland Band until the end of spring quarter, so that means they will not perform at all anymore this year. Um, and they have one more opportunity to appeal, I believe, which they are taking to appeal to Provost Etchmendi and um, per- Provost the new Provost, Provost Drell, might also have a little bit of say in it. Uh, but that is what's coming up, and a lot of students are very disappointed in the decision. The the band is sort of a complex institution on campus because it has a bit of a a contentious history. It's not really very well liked by basically every other college that is not Stanford because it has a bit of an unorthodox style, doesn't perform like a traditional marching band, is, you know, kind of satirical and wacky and um, funky. And so a lot of students believe Stanford has been looking for an excuse to get rid of the band for, for quite some time and is essentially grasping at straws to, to eliminate this cherished institution that a lot of students really feel has been a home on campus for them. Yeah, it's definitely a great community for a lot of the band members. I have a lot of friends in band, and they love it. They're so, so upset. And the band very much like personifies some of Stanford's most enigmatic qualities, I'd say. Um, so it's really disappointing, this decision. It's also very interesting, like Akash saying, somewhat a controversial history, but most of the stuff that or the actions at least that the university is most upset about occurred a couple of years ago and members of that band have already gone and graduated and so members of this band really weren't a part of any of the sort of foul play that the university faults them for now so it's, it's an interesting decision it is it, it really is and you know like you guys are saying it really does represent sort of an epitome of stanford culture in terms of the wackiness and the craziness um especially at such an elite institution it's very interesting to have a band like this and uh that students are really, really upset to see them try and take it away. So it's definitely not going down without a fight. Um, from online um, emails that are just have spread for asking for things like letters um, to things like FERPA requests to try and you know blackmail the administration in a sense to to not do this. Um, students have really been trying to take action in a lot of different ways. And they've also been taking out their grief in a lot of different ways. But all of them really seem constructive. Um, which obviously is the best way to combat something like this versus destructive. And just to sort of provide some background, um, a lot of the reasons that the the university has issues with the band, uh, like Lucas said, originate from a series of Title IX violations that occurred six-ish years ago, I think, if that sounds about right. Um, and most of those, all of those band members have since graduated, but ever since those incidents and since those violations were put on record, the administration has been steadily imposing sanctions of various kinds on the band. So for the past year, even though the band has been allowed to play at home games, they've been banned from traveling with limited exceptions. So they weren't at the big game this year, um, and they weren't allowed to travel to away football games. And they've complied with all these requests, uh, even as they've gotten more and more onerous. And so one other broader issue is sort of whether the Stanford administration has taken it a little bit too far in terms of punishing the modern-day band for infractions that it had no control over and um, in terms of sort of demanding too much from a student group that is one of the 
the few student-managed large organizations on campus that you know, has a fairly significant budget and a huge membership base and is, is really, you know, widely known and widely accepted. And if you read some of the articles circulating right now, I think some of the things that come out are things like moving goalposts for the band in terms of the band will, you know, complete something that the university has said that they need to change um, as the university has tried to really overhaul the culture, quote unquote, of the band. Um, and the band has been really frustrated. And I think that's what's coming out right now is the frustration of the band for trying to follow all the rules and the university just not taking any of it. So I think that's also one reason why it's gotten to the point where yeah. it's gotten. Yeah, and so it's very unclear what sort of sparked this, like the university deciding at this moment to ban the band, right? And according to various band members, it's sort of because there's one of the many impositions on the band has been a drinking ban on band members from drinking sort of collectively as a unit at band events. And apparently a couple of band members gathered for dinner and shared a pitch, like literally one pitcher of beer at a restaurant on campus. Um, so if that's what's really tipping the university over the point, that doesn't make sense. Um, another interesting thing is that apparently um, one of the fellow writers here at SBJ sort of found this out. Sort of under California law, private universities are actually sort of subject to the First Amendment in the sense that students of private universities in California can make First Amendment claims against the university. So... Um, We've a lot of people have been encouraging the band to sort of actually follow up on this and take it to court and make a First Amendment claim, right? This is freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, lots of sorts of stuff. And the university would have to come up with a very tangible reason as to why they don't want this group to gather. Uh, so it could be very interesting. What's also really interesting to think about, in my opinion, is to see whether the band still performs at events where it would be advantageous for the university if they performed at, right? So at mid-weekend, the band does... Lots of things during Amit Weekend. It's a big, it's a big show. It's a big attraction. I'm sure it's a lot of, it's a big reason why a lot of kids decide to come because they want to be a part of the band. They see how fun and wacky Stanford School can be amidst the stress and the eliteness of the university. And if the band isn't playing at Amit Weekend, I I really don't know what Amit Weekend will be like. Similarly, Band Run is a big freshman tradition during NSO. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the university exploits the bands for positive use. Yeah, and the as at this point the future of the band is pretty uncertain. But if the university has its way, the band will potentially reform next year. But it will have a professional band director, and it will be run essentially by a committee that is headed by vice provost boardman and uh, whoever this committee hires as the new band director. So the student run and leadership oriented aspect of the band will be completely gone. We obviously don't know sort of what form it will take in the future, but it definitely won't be the same. And whether or not it'll be as attractive or popular among students also remains to be seen. And I think it's a really scary thought to think that next year we won't recognize the Stanford Band. But pivoting a little bit and still on the subject of um, Title IX investigations um, is the sexual assault case that has resurfaced that um, started a couple years ago, I believe, um, with a student who committed multiple sexual assaults. Um, and so this has come up again because um, reports that the university offered settlements of, I believe it was $60,000 to victims to settle the case and and not talk about it anymore came up, and this was pretty infuriating to a lot of students. Um, I don't think the university commented, but it's what happened. Um, And people are really upset about, I think, the way that Title IX is being applied very selectively and what the university has chosen to focus on. Um, 
and its response because the university has a lot of power and it's really using that power in some really weird ways. Um, and I think the two main themes here are Title IX and I think the other one is not listening to student voices. And that's been really hard with all of the things that have been going on this past year and, and last year with the university when they ask for student voices and then they don't listen to them. And we can take a case in point with the alcohol policy. Yeah, adding on to that, you know, it's, it's I, I, I would I would hate for me to, I hate to say that I think the university is doing this on purpose because I don't think they are. I, I have, I believe that they're making sincere attempts to reach out to students, but right now the message that students are receiving and the message that's being sent out by their actions is that they don't really take students' voices into account. And this is sort of happened with the alcohol policy, and it's happening now again with the ban, right? Last year, the university announced their intentions to reform alcohol culture by potentially banning hard alcohol in the middle of dead week of winter quarter as students are gearing up for final exams. Students don't really have enough time to sort of think about the implications of what this would be or really organize some sort of collective response to the university, whatever that may be. And then again, just now, fall quarter, dead week, the university comes out with this news that they're going to ban the band. Again, students are too stressed with exams, too stressed with everything going on in their life at the moment to sort of formulate any sort of collective response to the university. I don't know if the university is doing, making these decisions during dead week on purpose or what it is, but it's just a poor choice of timing if they really sincerely want student voices to be included in the process of these actions. Yeah, there definitely is a feeling that a lot of what the university has been doing in terms of policy in the recent past is sort of very, very catch-up and, and very responsive maybe to concerns about the university's image or the university's press and not particularly responsive to uh, the types of things that could make student life better um, or improve the, the the quality of the student experience. And so one sort of you know potentially troubling thing to look out for is whether or not the university keeps on making these types of decisions that by and large the students don't agree with for reasons that the students you know can't really understand because that would be that that wouldn't really bode well for the sort of relations between the student body and the administrators as you know we go forward and it's hard because as um you know as a student of the university on the one hand you want a university that looks out for its image and it's and and you know you want it to do the right thing but you that also involves listening to students so i think it's a hard balance very given you know every university has to deal with that balance of of trying to maintain what it is as a university what it means to be an elite university and the voices of the students who you know don't want to take any final exams you know or, um but i really think that stanford is not finding that balance right now and that is why students are so infuriated. And I think it's hit after hit for students who have been here for like the past two or three years in amidst many controversies, not just one. So I think it's hard. I think it's a hard job that the university has to do and that these provosts have to make decisions on. But I don't think that they're doing it well at the moment. Yeah, but I, I will say, you know, I don't want to completely fault the university. Like, for example, I know... One good example of a time when students voiced concerns over an issue and the university actually took action on it was sort of the Jujunipro Sarah controversy last year. You know, something we talked about on the show last season, something that generated lots of conversations all across campus. And, you know, the president commissioned a group of people to establish norms for when to rename buildings. And he sort of got the ball rolling on that from the administration's perspective on 
what renaming buildings named after Jane Prospero would look like and how we would rename other buildings going into the future. So that's one good example of something sort of sometime a time when they did it right. But That's a fair example, and so is Swoomin on the Quad. Um, the university tried to get rid of that as well, and students said, absolutely not. This is something that we feel really passionate about. This is something that's part of our culture. Don't get rid of it, and they haven't. Um, they are currently in the process of reforming it, I believe. Yep. Um, and instead of happening this quarter, it's scheduled to happen next yeah. quarter. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, but you make a good point, Lucas. You know, it's it's a lot of decisions that they have to make. And every once in a while, they do something that we don't hate. Uh, so we should give them credit for that. Um, yep. Here's hoping that the trend starts to lean a little bit more in terms of student voices and student experiences on campus. Agreed. Yep. Um, so I think translating to stuff that's been going on around the world and in the United States, sort of Aleppo, the city in Syria, has been going through a lot right now. Um, and they've been going, the city has been sort of this focal point of the war for a long time now, but just recently there's been a large uptick in civilian death and civilian tragedies that sort of turned the, the, the world's eyes dead again onto Syria, which is sort of, to me at least, looking more and more like it's, the biggest foreign policy sort of conflict of our generation. Absolutely. And if, you know, if you're looking for a little bit of context, you've got Assad, the current president, who is backed by Russian forces, and then you've got some rebel groups. Um, a few of them are backed by United States forces, and they were just, I believe, pushed out of the city again. Um, and so Assad's forces have taken control, and it's just a very, very scary time. And it's, I think, us witnessing a lot of human rights violations and trying to figure out how to deal with it. And it's very, very interesting because we have generations in the past that have dealt with it, that have seen it, that have been in our exact place. And what are we doing that's different, I think is the biggest question we have to ask ourselves. And right now, it doesn't seem like much. So what happens next and what happens while the eyes of the world are watching, um, and I think in a very new way than has ever been in the past, people are literally tweeting their last words, um, I think it's going to be one of the most documented human rights violations in history. And it's really scary to be in a time when a lot of people are trying to figure out what their response should be as a civilian of the United States. Yeah, that's a really good point, Kayla. Especially, um, you know, I'm sure you've all seen on Facebook recently, there are sort of videos of uh, citizens of Aleppo recording their last words or, or publishing statements in the event that, you know, they die in the, in the ensuing days or weeks as the city is, you know, still being shelled, as government forces are conducting executions in the streets. And it's sort of a, the, the expansion of social media, the sort of availability of information uh, is sort of a, a whole new perspective on what these kinds of wars look like and on what it sort of really means to be a person amidst the devastation and to sort of have this, this you know, common humanity with the people who are victims there. And so... Um, it's it's in many ways similar to um, the types of abuses we've seen in the past, but it's also wildly different because we can see these things in a new way, and that really affects how we'll respond to them as a culture. Yeah, and you know, to be clear, right, this is a war that's been raging for coming on close to four or five years now. Right, you think back to the 2012 Arab Spring when all these revolutions started popping up all over the Middle East and northeastern Africa, and you know, again, social media was a huge player in the Arab Spring. And Syria, Tunisia, Egypt, they all started then. And, you know, Tunisia and Egypt have somewhat settled down, but Syria is still going. And as Kayla was saying, there's multiple players here, right? This isn't 
this is not just you know Assad versus rebels. This is sort of Assad. There's three or four rebel groups, and then ISIS is a big player in the region. So you've got these four, maybe five people all struggling for power over the region, and then there's a bunch of civilians who are just caught in the middle. On top of that, you have world powers like Russia, like the United States. Russia sort of more directly backing Assad. The United States hasn't fully sort of supported one group or another. You have calls for the United States, for Great Britain, to go into Syria and fix the situation. Is that something you know you want to do as a country? It's it's crazy, and it's so hard to think about, like, while we try to settle these differences between five such different um, players, like civilians just suffering all the meanwhile. And, of course, I think the timing is, is really interesting because you've got a president-elect who's coming in who's very close with Russia, and then you've got President Obama and and the U.S.'s history of backing some of the rebel groups, and I think that there's going to be a shift, and it's going to be dramatic, but I, I think it's hard to tell what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and it's especially that's, you know, Donald Trump, right, very... No, none to very little foreign policy experience, right, especially if you sort of look at his business record, um, taking the reins from President Obama, who himself admitted when he was first elected that foreign policy was one of his weaker areas. Yeah. So the sort of question is, you know, can we look at, like, will we expect to see a different crisis management style from our new president? Um, will we expect to see sort of more authority or more... Um, uh, sort of more of a more of a role played directly by military advisors or by uh, you know the heads of various military agencies or departments in the future from the U.S. Will we expect to see you know a similar amount of executive control exercised? Like we just really have no idea what the next three to six months will look like from an American perspective in Syria, and that confusion really sort of means means a lot for people on the ground and for rebel forces who are perhaps looking for U.S. support or who are at least looking for some kind of firm commitment so they understand what their situation looks like. Yeah, and, like, to be clear, like, I mean, I myself am very confused on, like, currently what the U.S.'s sort of involvement in Syria is. I know they've supplied some armaments to, like, one or two rebel groups, but back in 2013, 2014, whatever it was, Obama drew his red line in the sand and said, Assad, you use chemical warfare against your citizens. I will sort of, he said, that's the last line. Right. Assad did it, and nothing, no, nothing, nothing happened, happened yeah. so nothing resulted. So, again, like we said, foreign policy, not one of Obama's strong suits. Definitely not wise, in my opinion, to draw that line and let someone sort of easily cross it. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Just a lot of uncertainty going on. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that um, now that the U.S. economy especially is doing so much better than when like, President Obama took office, it's sort of this reversal of, now foreign policy is, and, and this international crisis is really the focus versus getting the U.S. economy back on track and that sort of thing, especially when the domestic issues were, were really what Donald Trump ran on. Um, and so it's a very interesting time for domestic versus international, um, especially compared to when Obama was first taking office. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pivoting a little bit to focus on the United States, um, there's also been a little bit of, of this reemergence of the idea that the Electoral College could go toward Hillary. Um, and we've we've spoken on this a little bit in past episodes. I think last episode we mentioned, um, you know, that, that people were trying to make this happen. And um, on the one hand, I really, and I think you guys would agree with me, don't think it's going to happen. Um, and on the other hand, if it did, um, it could be really, really 
terrifying, actually, for um, for the United States population. Yeah, something like uh, I think six members of the Electoral College, these sort of so-called faithless electors, have you know declared that they'll either cast their electoral electoral votes for uh, Hillary Clinton or even for Bernie Sanders in December when the Electoral College actually meets to sort of formally decide who's going to be inaugurated in January. Um, but, but like Kayla said, this is sort of like a wildly improbable scenario that has no sort of real chance of actually manifesting itself. The sort of issue is that it, it says a lot about the state that our sort of domestic politics are and that this is something we even have to discuss. Because, you know, maybe this has been called for in the past, but never has it been sort of so real that you have electors publicly saying, no, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with my district or disagree with my county and I'm going to vote differently. Um, which is, you know, many believe a little bit uh, sort of like a slap in the face to people who voted for Donald Trump, you know, regardless of whether or not you, you like him as a, as a presidential candidate or as the president-elect, right? There's something to be said for people who, who cast their ballots a certain way being represented in the way that they, they cast their ballots for. Yeah, and even furthermore, I'd say it just it puts a lot of liberals in a very tough position to when you so firmly believe that, you know, and so, and rightfully so, that Donald Trump is a, is a threat to the republic, is a threat to liberalism in America, but you can't, if he is such a threat, to remove that threat, you would have to undermine the very principles that you're trying to defend, and you'd have to undermine the whole system that, again, you are trying to defend and go around that. So how could you realistically sort of try to remove the threat without not appearing hypocritical, but at least not just abandoning the principles that the country exactly, was yeah. founded on. Um, very crazy stuff. Yeah, and I, to be fair, I 110% did not think Donald Trump was going to get elected. Um, and maybe 2016 slash early 2017 has one more surprise left up its sleeve for us. Um, it's already been a long year, and maybe 2017 will start off with a bang. Um, so, you know, you can't, I, you can't rule it out, um, is what I learned <laughs> this past election. So, um, that it's, it's, I think it's just going to be a really, really interesting and very historical moment. I, I don't think, um, an electoral, an electoral vote has gone the opposite way. Ever. Ever. Ever, quite ever. Quite. <laughs> so, this is huge. No matter what happens, whether or not she somehow takes it. It's it's huge and it's a really really historical moment in um, in time. So yeah, there's there's definitely sort of a lot of symbolic value to to sort of this discussion, even if it you know likely doesn't end up sort of meaning anything. Absolutely. Um, but while we're on the topic of our president elect, um, we have sort of a, a couple of quick cabinet picks to discuss. Uh, Rick Perry nominated for Secretary of Energy and Rex Tillerson nominated for Secretary of State after. Uh, President elect Trump, uh, President elect Trump, excuse me, uh, toyed with Mitt Romney for a couple of weeks and and interviewed him a couple of times. Lucas, yeah, um, I'm personally not too fond of the Tillerson pick, as I think are a lot of people in the country. Um, so Tillerson, right? He's a former CEO of Exxon, big oil giant. He's got a lot of experience dealing with Russia, other foreign oil powers. Um, so I guess that semi-qualifies him for this job, but at the same time, not as Secretary of State. Like, business dealings are so different from diplomatic relations. I mean, we were just talking about the situation in Syria. 
I don't see, and there's nothing in Tillerson's resume to me that makes him particularly qualified to handle that as Secretary of State. There's nothing that makes me think Rex Tillerson is particularly qualified to handle any sort of diplomatic crisis, um, which is very concerning. I think there's been a lot of controversial picks, Jeff Sessions as AG, obviously, but this is this is the guy that I think the Senate might put the biggest fight up against. Because, again, Secretary of State, this is the most powerful cabinet position, um, alongside Secretary of Defense, probably, but Secretary of State's very, very powerful. And he very controversial figure is all I'm going to say. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and I think it could be a very interesting bipartisan fight as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in that sense in like this quote-unquote united government where you have all three branches for one party, but do you really? You know, are they? what are they going to do with that in light of who the president-elect is? Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of press recently from some you know fairly conservative senators, people like Lindsey Graham, who have... Um, very staunchly attacked President-elect Trump for um, what they perceive as his dismissal of the claim that Russia potentially meddled in the U.S. elections. And uh, Senator Graham has actually called for the opening of hearings and for some further investigations into this issue. So even though the Republicans have sort of nominally control of all three branches of government, whether or not the party is sort of itself unified around the agenda that President Trump appears to be, or President-elect Trump appears to be advancing with this cabinet pick sort of remains to be seen. And that'll also be an interesting dynamic to observe after the inauguration in January. Um, but there are a couple more interesting picks as well. Um, I don't know if either of you all have anything interesting to say about Tillerson and Perry. Um, recently, Elon Musk was potentially named as um, a member of the Council of Economic Advisors, um, which sort of is consistent with the theme of uh, Donald Trump looking towards the business world for experience when it comes to positions that are sort of very domestic policy oriented. Um, one other, I, I believe, from California who was nominated for, for the same position. So, yeah. you know, pretty consistent with the theme so far there. Yeah, picking business leaders, you know, the administration's coming together. It is. Um, so we'll, I guess we just have to wait to see what comes past January 20th, who gets confirmed, et cetera, et cetera, and really what policies actually end up being enacted. Because, right, we can talk about what these picks suggest and what it implies in the symbolic representation and stuff, but the reality is until tangible until tangible actions start being taken, um, we don't really know for sure. We don't really know for sure. Yeah. And so it's not really completely fair to say one thing or the next. Yeah, and I think just like as a last note, something you mentioned, Akash, was the, the allegations that Russia played a part in the U.S. election, and I think that that's like a big thing, gaining a lot of news headlines right now, um, at least on the left. So that will also be an interesting thing to watch play out. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that just wraps, about wraps it up. Um, we are going to take a three-week hiatus. We are off on our winter breaks. It's been a long quarter for us, and we've been working very hard. But we will return better than ever come winter quarter. We'll have a lot of great interviews, panels lined up for you guys, hopefully. So just stay tuned until then. But enjoy your holiday season. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget, you can find the Axe in Politics on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on the Stanford Political Journal website. And make sure you go like the SPJ on Facebook. Thank you very much.